Hello, this is Dr. Lynn McPherson, and welcome to Palliative Care Chat, the podcast brought to you by the online Master of Science and Graduate Certificate Program at the University of Maryland. We have a real treat today, not only one person that we're interviewing on this podcast, but four of five authors from a very important paper published in The Lancet. The first is Dr. Lucas Radbruch, who tells me that's close enough for somebody from the U.S. to pronounce. He is the chair of the board of directors from the International Association for Hospice and Palliative Care, and he's a practicing physician in palliative care. Also, we have Dr. Felicia Marie Knoll, who is a professor at Leonard Miller School of Medicine at the University of Miami director of the Institute for Advanced Study of the Americas and a full member of the Cancer Control Program at the Sylvester Comprehensive Care Center. She's also president of a Mexican NGO uh, who I, that I cannot pronounce. Dr. Nall, bail me out here. Tomatelo Pecho uh, works on women's health in Latin America in particular. Okay, well, that was my next plan on how to pronounce it, but thank you for bailing me out. She's also a chair of the Lancet Commission, and as a matter of fact, all of our authors have been involved with the Lancet Commission for Global Access to Palliative Care and Pain Relief, and a very important effort. Ms. Liliana de Lima, who's the executive director of the International Association of Hospice and Palliative Care. Dr. Afsa Badilia, research associate, Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health, and not present, but also an author on the paper, Cornelius de Jonchere, uh, who was president of the International Narcotics Control Board. Welcome, everyone. I'm delighted to be with you today, and thank you for taking time for us. So the article that you all authored that caught my eye is titled, the key role of palliative care in response to the COVID-19 tsunami of suffering, published in The Lancet, May of 2020. Wow, that looks like an important paper. Let's start with Dr. Nall. Dr. Nall, this tsunami of suffering, that sounds pretty impressive. So what does this mean and who is feeling this most? Well, thank you so much for having us here. All of us um, who worked initially on The Lancet Commission for global access to palliative care and pain relief that really gave rise to the comment that you mentioned that we, we published together recently. Um, but we're so thrilled that you have this concern, particularly for access in low and middle income countries. You know, and, and this is sort of the moment to be speaking very sadly about Latin America. 8% um, of the population is in Latin America, the world's population, yet they are now concentrating well over 40% of daily COVID deaths, um, and we're seeing a huge upswing, particularly in Brazil and Mexico, so that there are now more deaths in Brazil um, and Mexico in the upswing, but more deaths in Brazil every day than we're seeing in the United States. Um, yet this is happening in a region of the world where health systems are weak. Much of the population in many countries, at least half, in, are employed in the formal informal sector, um, non-salaried workers with no kinds of social protection, nothing to do if they can't get work, so they have to go outside, um, and, and living in conditions where um, they're very close one to the other, so that physical distancing is really, really very difficult. And so that just gives rise to what we call the tsunami of suffering. And when we published this paper, we were worried about it. We are now seeing it happening um, in, in, in real time. Again, I spoke about Latin America, but we can speak about Asia and, and to some extent Africa as well. Um, the tsunami of suffering means that countries and regions of the world that were not prepared to begin with to satisfy need for palliative care and pain relief um, have now received an onslaught of need. 
Um, I'm sure that Dr. Rajbush will speak more about this, but we know that just essential services um, around palliative care support and bereavement support, but also opioid medicines were, were just so lacking. And now when we speak about excess mortality, um, we're speaking about both the need that existed before for serious health-related suffering that's associated primarily with chronic and non-communicable diseases, but in addition, the need associated with, with COVID and COVID deaths. And so what we knew before was if we take the issue of, of pain relief medications, these countries only had enough to satisfy about one-third of palliative care need before COVID, and only 4 to 5% of overall need before COVID. Now, with COVID, how are they going to manage to satisfy this need? And we have some you know, very specific recommendations that I know we'll speak about a little bit later as to how we can strengthen um, the health systems of low and middle income countries in the face of this, and hopefully in ways that will strengthen them overall in terms of meeting palliative care need and need for pain relief medications, um, and certainly have them more prepared for future pandemics. Mm -hmm. And it seems like with their limited healthcare resources, people who have non-COVID illnesses are getting squeezed even harder. Can you drill down any further on the specific implication for these low-income and middle-income countries you've been speaking of? Yes, absolutely. Thank you for, for insisting on that point, because that's really where the tsunami is, in fact, happening. And, you know, one other issue we want to, to highlight is something that we never saw in high-income countries with this the onslaught of this pandemic painful as it is um, and continues to be the majority of people were dying and are dying in hospitals that's very painful for their loved ones who can't be there often and that's what's led to these issues of complex bereavement what we're going to see in low and middle income countries where hospitals simply cannot meet this need um, even under the best, best scenarios, and I'll get back to that in just a minute, um, they can't meet this need. And so patients are going to be dying in their homes. And they're going to be dying in their homes from COVID and from other diseases, illnesses, and conditions. Um, both require palliative care. Both kinds often require pain relief medication. But what is going to be happening in low and middle income countries is that their caregivers are um, forced into situations where they have to have their loved ones die in the home, they have to give unprotected caregiving. So their risk of COVID is going to increase exponentially as a result of all of these individuals suffering this disease, dying or not dying, in these conditions where they are not going to be able to get access to hospitals and, and medical care. Um, and then the added piece that I think we, we just need to say is at least, and I will only speak for Latin America where I actually have my permanent residence there in Mexico, um, we have seen very poor leadership, just extremely poor leadership. Um, some of it has been, let's be generous, ignorance, but some of it has been truly going against what science and evidence has told us about protecting people from the onslaught of this disease and health systems. So they've done anything but flatten the curve, which would have allowed us to be able to that health systems better manage both the NCDs, the non-communicable diseases, and the chronic illnesses that give rise to palliative care need, but also COVID itself. So we have leaders um, in Brazil, in Mexico, 
and in, in several other places that really acted very late, telling populations not to worry about it. And some, in the case of Brazil, they continue to do so. So we are generating a tsunami because of very poor leadership in some countries, and they're large countries, and it, it, it's causing a series of issues. Um, for those populations and around the world, but specific to palliative care, it's, it's a surge of need um, in places where there was always a tremendous lack of access. And, and again, this is something about which we have some concrete suggestions and recommendations. Well, before we get to those, I am almost afraid to ask if you look in your crystal ball, how is this going to ultimately play out? Will it just be a matter of people who survive having had the illness, do you think? So, you know, I am not a physician or an expert on, on this pandemic. And so let, let's, let's just play out what could happen under the best case scenarios so that also the audience can hear some positive ideas. Um, we've actually developed a state level um, observatory of um, public policy and public health around physical distancing um, in Mexico and Brazil and expanding to the region. And I want to say that the state level is so important because in places and countries, and we also saw this in the United States, where federal or national leadership is lacking, there is an opportunity for state level government, civil society, and the private sector to step it up and to realize that they can improve the situation of their population. And they can step it up in terms of um, access to palliative care as well within their health systems. And we are beginning to see this. We see some much better performing states, some worse performing states. And so a little bit of naming and shaming, I think, is going to help to improve the situation in, in many of these countries. Now, the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago. But the second best time to plant a tree is now. Yeah. So now is the time to help populations to meet this need. There's a tremendous um, tension between people suffering the economic suffering that's associated with this pandemic and, and the loss of life. Mm -hmm. So we also know that there are some important public health recommendations. This is not specific to palliative care, but it will certainly help to reduce that excess mortality and excess need. Mm -hmm. When governments decide and people decide to open it up and relax the physical distancing, we need to help people to understand, use masks, yeah. maintain the six feet, right? Wash your hands. And we need to insist on tracing and we need to insist on testing. Testing, yes. testing, testing is the message. And going back to palliative care, that's so that we can help to flatten the curve. Flatten the curve means also access to palliative care, pain relief medications, and for breathlessness in particular, and um, complex bereavement support. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> Any other comments on palliative care's role in COVID? I mean, overall even, but particularly in these underserved countries? Well, I really, I really want to let our other panelists say something here, but what I want to highlight is what an opportunity I think we have to leapfrog over an obstacle that we've been facing in palliative care and pain relief, um, I think probably for decades. Um, there is a tremendous lack of access to opioid medications, um, really because of misinformation. It isn't about the money. It's about better decision-making. And, and we were really so pleased that the president of the International Narcotics Control Board co-authored um, the paper in Lancet with us because they have made huge steps forward in encouraging countries 
to do the right thing, to have a balanced approach to access to opioid medications. So what we are really hoping is that this desperate need that's being created by COVID-19 will help countries to realize that they can do aggregate purchasing, for example, with the Pan American Health Organization, that they can put in place um, safety valves and ways to appropriately give access to all patients who are in need of opioid medications. And, and I think we have to see an opportunity there to, to get a balance that we did not have in the past. So sometimes, you know, chaos and desperation, I think it's Churchill who said, no, nev never miss a good crisis. Um, there's never a crisis of a pandemic that's actually good. But let's not miss the tsunami here um, and the political opportunity we see to encourage countries to change their policies around access, balanced approaches to opioid medications, working in partnerships with the International Narcotics Control Board. Well, let's hope that is indeed our silver lining. So I'll take that question to Dr. Ronbrush. Can you tell me, how has the COVID uh, pandemic increased the need for palliative care? So what are you seeing medically as the symptoms patients are presenting with? How, what kind of a role can palliative care play? Well, first question would be what, what patients we are talking about, because there's different kinds of patients. One is that there are some patients who have moderate intensity um, COVID disease um, and who do not require palliative care, but do have symptoms that have to be alleviated. Then there's patients who may not be eligible for intensive care if you do have an overwhelming number of patients and the intensive care beds are have to be triaged. Um, and who then have to have an alternative treatment for the symptoms at least. And there is quite a lot of, in Germany, for example, we had a number of patients who had pre-existing comorbidities and who then choose not to go into intensive care, but said that they'd rather stay where they are, um, run the course of the disease, and they definitely also need symptom relief. And there is palliative care patients from with other diseases who may not be able to access hospital beds or hospices or any any other places mm -hmm. and who now suffer from their symptoms much more than they would otherwise. Mm -hmm. the, the symptoms as such are the physical symptoms is predominantly breathlessness, as you already already said, um, and coughing, which is also quite severe for some patients, but breathlessness is the one thing that has to be alleviated. And it's not only the breathlessness as such, but it's also the fear of suffocating. So every time the patient doesn't get enough breath, um, he also has the fear that what happens if this increases, that he will you know, terribly suffocate with um, no relief for that. And so anxiety, panic is always an add-on to the breathlessness. Um, some patients do suffer from confusion, and the initial report said that patients would not have pain, but by now we do have more information from also from clinical studies showing that up to one-third or even half of the patients may have pain, and it may be some descriptive pain in some, some joints or something like that, or it may be the same thing as with a very intensive flu that you have um, aching body all over and that also requires even energetic medications. Mm -hmm. so, so patients would require treatment with opioids for their breathlessness and sometimes for their pain and for the coughing. And they would need benzodiazepines for their um, anxiety and panic. And both, unfortunately, are uh, controlled medicines that in most countries are under, under strict scheduling. 
and in, especially the low and middle income countries are not easily available. So even before Corona, we have always said that in many of these countries in Africa and Asia and Latin America, patients would have to be very lucky indeed to find somebody who would give them access to these medications. Mm -hmm. there, there's also other issues which I find as important as the physical symptoms. Um, for example, you do have a lot of things to do with decision making, you know, finding the patient's preferences, deciding on treatment indications, and that's actually something where palliative care has a long experience and strong experience uh, how to elicit, for example, patient preferences, how to decide if there are ethical dilemmas. Um, and, for example, we have offered our experience to the crisis staffs in the hospitals and found that it's, it's very important that when you discuss about triage decisions, about um, allocation of intensive beds or something like that, um, that you do have the experience that we have from talking to patients and discussing treatment preferences. And um, it, as you asked about the need for palliative care, sometimes we think that in some of these situations, we clearly see a need for involvement of palliative care people and experience, um, but sometimes it's not shared by the other colleagues. So sometimes we have to offer our services and support to the intensive care guys. And it, they, they didn't really want it initially, and so we had to convince them. Um, and similarly, uh, with the access to opioids, for example, we had to really explain that, um, for example, not only the palliative care unit needs enough opioids for that kind of treatment, but that also the, the general medicine sector, the public health sector, the primary health care sector really needs access to opioids in adequate amounts. And that, especially in low and middle income countries, is a real problem right now. Hmm. Well, my impression in the United States is that palliative care has emerged as one of the silver linings of this disaster. And I think that people are recognizing what palliative care brings to the table. But it strikes me in these low and middle come in income countries that with the physical symptoms and the limited availability of the drugs, there's only so much that palliative care can do. So I'm sure they're a little bit hamstrung by that. Is that your impression as well? Well, it's not only that, but it's also that um, there is so little palliative care available there. So in many of these countries, you would have palliative care available in some of the urban areas around the capital, but not in the rural areas for the rest of the countries. There are models how you can do that in some African countries, for example. Mm -hmm. There are some countries that have really stepped up their palliative care capacities in recent years quite significantly. But all in all, it's as I said, it's in, in, in many countries of the world, you really have to be lucky to find somebody who, who will be trained to use these medications, who will be able to use them and find a place where they are stocked. And even if they are available in the country, then quite often the local pharmacy and the local physician will just tell you that they're out of stock right now. Yes. We have a student in our master's program who's a missionary in Mozambique, and she told me there are only three oncologists in the whole country. And palliative care is really not even a thing. Uh, so it's, it's, it is certainly very concerning. Well, thank you very much. Let's turn to Dr. Vidalia. So Dr. Uh, Radbrush talked about some of the psychosocial issues um, that have come up. Could you maybe expand on this, Dr. Vidalia, the psychosocial issues that have arisen with the COVID, uh, COVID epidemic. 
Yes, of course. So the containment measures, including lockdown, that have taken um, that have been uh, put in place have had dramatic impacts on day-to-day -day life of billions of people around the world, and this has immense consequences um, in terms of mental and social well-being. Uh, to particular concerns resulting from prolonged isolation um, and overall, you know, the pandemic control measures that have, have been put in place include loneliness, depression, anxiety. In the context of palliative care, we need to mitigate the impact of the social isolation at the end of life and um, the vast caregiver distress that is also resulting. So there is a, a lack of information around the dying process for patients as well as, as caregivers and family members. Um, things are happening at a rapid pace. Uh, the response to this pandemic um, has been of real time. So measures such as visitors not being allowed at hospitals has a huge impact. Um, Family members, so patients who have severe illness, who have, uh, who have COVID and are dying, um, cannot have loved ones visit them. And so that has, uh, it, both for, for the patients themselves at the end of life, the experience that they have, uh, but the families who sur survive them, um, that can impact and, and, and further um, uh, result in complicated grief. So exasperated mourning that, that can result, the, the lack of closure at the end of life. Um, and so persistent form of intense grief that sort of takes over um, the life of, of, of these family members for a long time. Um, I'm sure um, my colleagues would have, have more to add on that, um, uh, particular uh, Dr. Radbush. But um, I think there's, there's additional challenges also thinking about the stigma um, that has um, uh, surrounding this. So, for example, um, someone might be ill. So, uh, healthcare workers, when they come back home, or um, uh, the reaction from their families, uh, sometimes are, are, are people are facing, of course, understandably, because of fear of the, for the disease. Uh, but then there's been racism and physical attacks against Asian uh, Asians and people of Asian descent, um, uh, you know, has spread dramatically. Um, with the spread of the pandemic. And so, um, you know, one of the things that the, a few weeks ago, the UN Secretary General, Antonio Guterres said, uh, was the pandemic continues to unleash a tsunami of hate, xenophobia, scapegoating, and scapemongering. And so we need countries to take decisive action around this. And so this is important um, because Asian Americans who are also, who, are, who may have COVID or uh, are experiencing some of these other, you know, elements are experiencing an additional layer uh, additional you know issues because of the stigma that they're facing. Um, then there's in terms of survivors, there's a range of issues. We're still learning um, the 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 issues that, that they are, well in real time learning what um, uh, they will face um, coming forward. I mean, in terms of um, certain types of of, of um, chronic symptoms that are appearing. Um, you know, I'm not a clinician, so I can't comment in detail on that, but the traumatic experience of being in ICUs for, for such a long time, that's just one example. Um, but the, there are a vast number of um, issues that we have to think about, particularly thinking about in the context, as we referenced in our article, um, around in the context of palliative care and end-of-life care. Mm -hmm. So these low and middle-income countries just like they're, as Dr. Redbridge talked, that they're not as well equipped to deal with the physical symptoms, how are they equipped to deal with the grief that you just described? You know, I think um, some lessons were learned by particular countries who have faced um, uh, experiences of outbreaks such as uh, Ebola. So in West Africa um, and, and DRC, and, and now Uganda has just had its uh, more recently its first case uh, of Ebola. Um, so though Uganda has not experienced it before, um, the, in terms of the Ebola outbreak, one of the major issues that had come up was in terms of um, how those who have died, 
how they're buried and family is not being able to partake in in the the process the ritual uh, the burial rituals that need to take place are culturally um, appropriate and so i think public messaging working with faith leaders working with um, elders and communities a lot of was done around um, understanding why this is necessary that the, the usual burial practices could not take place and so i, I think um, in those contexts there are lessons um, in other places, what, what's, what's, what's problematic is when you think about a country like India, um, with such high density, um, it is so much worse. Well, they haven't, you know, faced Ebola, but it, just in through thinking about how um, uh, the 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 ability um, to to address um, just you're trying to survive, and and on top of that, you have to address. And, and manage and deal with uh, loved, loved ones dying. And I think there's extreme poverty and, and we're witnessing uh, mass migration, um, starvation, mass amounts of food insecurity. And so um, the basic survival mode is on and people are have to, have to basically uh, delay grief uh, and grieving of, of the loss of loved ones, which is, which is very devastating. Oh my goodness. So how about the healthcare professionals who are working in the field? What are their implications? Well, of course, you know, they're working extended hours um, and, and serving the role of a physician, um, family member, friend at the same time for the patient. They're the ones who are um, sometimes, you know, trying to arrange, if possible, with tele telemedicine or with the phones, um, uh, farewells with family members. They're the ones who hold the hands of the patient at the end of, at the end of life. So they're experiencing an immense amount um, of, of um, uh, immense challenges already as is physically, but also in terms of um, psych psychological impact. And so there will be, you know, uh, there, we're witnessing this burnout. Um, and I think that that is uh, going to be an ongoing challenge as the pandemic continues and we see the second wave. And so there needs to be uh, peer counseling, for example, regular check-ins um, uh, with social support networks some sort of self-monitoring um, and working with teams. These need to be done to impact um, the exposure to death and dying. Um, and I think there, we have to, to, to think of new measures um, rapidly um, as a workforce um, has been pushed and not even palliative care physicians, but others um, who don't usually, physicians don't usually deal with, with death and dying. Um, and, and so um, this, is, uh, this is a huge impact on healthcare workers. Yes, yes, I can imagine. I don't, wouldn't want to be a respiratory therapist. I think they're uh, and they're pretty hot and heavy. Good grief. Well, I think we have to turn the ship here. So Ms. DeLima, there's always room for improvement. As the executive director of the association, what thoughts do you have about education and training for both low and middle income countries and the U.S.? What do you got for us? Uh, well, first of all, thanks me for um, having me in this um, podcast and thanks also for the interest in, um, in issues related, relevant to lower middle income countries. That's uh, where most of our work is focused on, although we do have a global mission. Um, in regards to education, um, there's an issue that it's really cross-cutting, uh, you know, throughout the whole um, world and includes high-income and, and low-income countries as well, and, and that's the lack of education and the limited knowledge and the competencies um, of healthcare workers in relation to palliative care. So there is a significant need to improve, and I think, um, you know, taking on what 
you know, the previous speakers have said and commented, I think uh, there's this is an opportunity and, and how it has become, um, I think it's now more than ever um, relevant uh, that palliative care needs to be included in the curricula of uh, healthcare professions and especially in the medical and nursing fields. Um, and I think the, the ideal situation certainly will be for every health professional to have some basic training in palliative care so that they can correctly identify patients with palliative care needs and then need take the necessary steps to alleviate um, the suffering that they identify and if needed, refer to a palliative care unit or request a consultation. And um, you know what we have seen, and certainly there's a lot more um, education happening now in schools in high-income countries. Um, however, in low and middle-income countries, um, this is not the case. Uh, with very few exceptions, most of the healthcare professionals are going into the field without um, having the skills to um, you know, meet these needs and, and address um, you know, the needs, the palliative care needs of patients. And uh, in many of these cases that we've seen, um, many of the suffering that um, Afsan mentioned and, and um, Lucas mentioned and Felicia as well, um, have to do with the, um, you know, the frustration that they're seeing in their inability um, or the limited capacity to meet um, you know, and alleviate some of the suffering. And that includes symptom control, and that includes communicating uh, with patients and their families and how to deliver bad news and how to alleviate the, the you know, the anxiety and, and all the other, um, you know, the other issues that may come up and um, may present when, when a patient gets sick. And in that regard, um, you know, there's a lot of work to be done. Um, and you, you know, one of the, thing, the the many issues that we can think of um, is how can we help from, you know, the academia and the civil society to make this happen. And, um, you know, that's one point to work. And it's one of the areas of work of the IHPC, certainly to improve um, and also uh, implement uh, curricula in medical nursing schools and hopefully all health care uh, related careers. Well, you know, I think, um, I would like to think that all the schools in the U.S. of pharmacy, nursing, medicine, and social work have significantly increased their content in palliative care, but I can't say that with a straight face. I think every professional school ought to have at least primary palliative care skills taught as described by Dr. Von Gutten, many of the skills you just described. I will say I'm very impressed with your search engine you have on the IHBC webpage where a person can go on and look for um, either particular country or worldwide or by a learning modality or whether they're looking for a graduate certificate or a master's or just a course. Uh, I think that's a very useful tool. So thank you so much for doing that. I know I get a lot of inquiries from international students, but the second question is, can I get a full scholarship? So it's very <laughs> difficult for these folks in the low and middle income countries to um, be able to afford higher education, but it's a good first step. I appreciate it. So how can the global palliative care organization support national efforts in the implementation of the recently adopted World Health Assembly resolution on COVID-19, which does include palliative care? Um, well, let, let me go back just a second on your uh, previous comment in regards to the resources that we have available. Um, 
first of all, for, um, and as you have seen, you know, this is all free, um, and this is as, a, as part of our mission and as a service to the global palliative care community. So for courses, seminars, and programs that are not leading to formal degrees, we have a global calendar of events that is, you know, continuously updated, and, and anybody can put up, um, you know, their course seminar um, in, in this calendar of events, we just we do check that they are legitimate before uploading, so it's not it's not real time. So the, it has to go through this filter, but we do check that um, the organization behind um, the supporting this event um, it's it, it's legitimate, and then it gets um, uploaded on the website, and that happens you know within 24 hours. It's it's not immediate, but it happens quite fast. And then for courses and programs leading to formal degrees, such as masters, PhD, fellowships, and others, uh, we do have also as well the comprehensive international directory um, of educational programs in um, palliative care. So uh, yes, thank you for um, you know pointing to those. And I, you know any listeners to the podcast are welcome to check it out. And if they have any programs in their universities that they wish to add, um, you know we'll be very happy to add those as well. Um, and then in regards to the COVID-19, we did build a special uh, website that is called um, globalpalliativecare.org, um, and it has the links to resources and includes publications to journals, books, and videos. And usually most of those links are also free to the global palliative care community. Uh, so that's, um, and in addition to that, we started the global palliative care and COVID-19 um, series in alliance with the International Children's Palliative Care Network, the Palliative Care and Humanitarian Aid Situations and Emergencies Network, uh, PALCHASI, and the Worldwide Hospice Palliative Care Alliance, WHPCA. And we're doing this series, which consists of uh, briefing notes on very relevant topics uh, to, to palliative care and COVID-19, and then weekly seminars that we do with international speakers. And these are also all uploaded on the globalpalliativecare.org website, mm -hmm. um, and they're all free. That's now, going, going to your question, how can we help um, on the implementation? Well. Uh, you know, this resolution, um, which was uh, adopted, you may be aware that the, the World Health Assembly is the governing body of the World um, Health Organization. And uh, for the first time in its history, in MET, um, it, they do have a, a, an assembly. It's called WHA, or the acronym. And they meet every year in May. Um, however, this year, um, because of the COVID uh, pandemic, they met for the first time virtually. And that was very interesting because it did have more presence than they usually have um, in terms of the ministers of health and um, prime, uh, prime ministers and presidents even um, talking to the assembly. That was the first time that they had, um, you know, presidents and prime ministers addressing the assembly. So it was, um, it was quite um, an event. And the rest of the, uh, during this, assembly, the whole assembly uh, voted by consensus to adopt this resolution on COVID-19. And um, thanks to the work, um, you know, the, the IHPC advocacy officer, uh, Dr. Catherine Petters and myself and, um, you know, many others working with um, palliative care leaders and national associations and countries, were together, uh, were uh, able to work with their own governments so that palliative care now is included in this resolution. 
And um, that's a very big um, issue, I think, and it, it helps as an advocacy, advocacy tool, as a resource um, that palliative care workers and national associations should get a hold on to and use to help their own governments to implement um, programs that integrate palliative care uh, fully. And uh, you know, it goes from prevention and all the way to palliative care. Very impressive, yeah. strong work. That's great. Yes, and there's there's another um, very nice, I think, publication that um, was recently amended um, by WHO on on the uh, palliative care uh, clinical guidelines on on the symptom management and palliative care, and and they now include a statement and and you know a. a, a paragraph about palliative care and how um, necessary um, it is to have and ensure the access to opioids um, and to business the acepines that uh, uh, Lucas was mentioning before. Um, so those are uh, those are very um, important documents that we have now um, in the international policy framework that we can certainly help the national associations implement in their own countries. And the, yes, um, now and, and the way to do that, of course, is you know through good advocacy, building relationships with the government, establishing um, you know uh, advisory committees with the ministries of health to see how can the people working in the field, you know, uh, physicians, nurses, pharmacists, social workers, all the healthcare professionals needed in the palliative care multidisciplinary team can help um, the government implement these recommendations. Mm -hmm. So those are, um, you know, very good, nice, uh, comprehensive documents that we now have um, in our hands and mm -hmm. as a resource. That's great. Are these available on your website? They are available on the website. They're also available on the WHO website. Um, and they're, you know, they can be downloaded for uh, as PDF files and um, for free. Okay, so Ms. DeLima, you and I speak very quickly, but I don't have your adorable little accent. Could you very slowly give us your website, please? Um, so I talked about our website, um, the, the IHBC website, and that's an easy one. It's hospicecare.com or hospicecare.org. Either one of those will point to the same one. Um, and that's the IHBC website. And um, the other website uh, that I mentioned is globalpalliativecare.org. And that's the one that we've, you know, it's, it's focused on COVID-19. Excellent. Thank you. So for all of our speakers, is there any closing thought you would like to share with our listeners? Anything about palliative care, the pandemic, low and middle income countries, anything? You know, I just thought I was thinking I would um, there were just a few pieces I thought it might be really worthwhile to highlight Please. that one of our key recommendations. Thank you. One of our key recommendations, as, as my colleagues and friends shared, the key recommendations in the Lancet Commission report that is that that no health professional or religious or spiritual guide or leader should graduate without at least one course in palliative care. And that this means it needs to be a requirement for licensing. And that's really important in low and middle income countries. It's very different to the US or Canada because our physicians and nurses are trained at the undergraduate level. They start seeing patients, they're usually sent to the field by the time they're 21 or 22 with an undergraduate medical degree. That's how their training happens. And they're sent out there 
with no training and how to manage what they're obviously going to face, which is a normal part of life and death, which is death. Um, so that, that's one point I think is really an important highlight. Um, to say that, you know, several of us, myself, I'm on the board as well of the IAHPC. I don't have that lovely accent, although I wish I did, so the IAHPC. And um, see how proud I am. It's the global society, global civil society movement um, around palliative care and pain relief is very unusual. We're very blessed to have it. We don't have a movement like that um, for any other disease, I think, or even issue, specific issue in the context of universal health coverage. And so we're really blessed. And that's why so much has been achieved. And just finally to share that you know, my, my heart goes out um, to so many who are living through these issues of, of complex bereavement and separation from their loved ones. Until recently, I couldn't quite share it the way I am now. But um, say my mother is uh, now having palliative care at that stage in Toronto. We haven't been able to get to see her we have to respect the quarantine and it's just so difficult and it's just it's very different to write about something to research and study something than to actually live it and, and my heart goes out to so many people around the world who are and have uh, already lived this kind of, of bereavement and uh, we just have to do the best we can in solidarity with making our world a safer place yeah well thank you dr no i'm sorry that your mom is ill but that's very very difficult and of course, you're singing my tune. That's my uh, reason I get up in the morning is hoping that every professional school would include palliative care education. And my argument is we have pretty good evidence that everybody's going to die. So uh, that's I'm all about that. I wish that we would do that as well. Anyone else have any closing comments? I would like to add a little bit on sort of the health inequalities that have, have been furthered due to the pandemic, if, if that's all right. Um, uh, so speaking to the U.S. context, communities of color have been incredibly disproportionately impacted by COVID. Um, so there's structural racism due to which black and minority populations, you know, many of whom have inferior health, um, care access, housing, economic conditions, and they're more likely to get COVID. Um, it, the, looking at sort of just the data from New York, um, the, the death rates, African-Americans death rate, among African-Americans, the death rate is 92 per 100,000. Uh, for Latino individuals is 74, and for white individuals is 45. So that's a huge disparity. Um, a couple of weeks ago, Navajo, Navajo Nation surpassed New York and New Jersey to have the most COVID infections per capita in the U.S. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, Native American reservations have been quite hardly hit, particularly because residents live in multi-generational homes. And so if the disease spreads within a home, if, if um, someone gets sick in a home, it's very difficult to, to stop the spread. Um, lack of access to water, um, major uh, restrictions acts of, of, of just of basic services um, but i think that's a really important thing to think about because um it, even in this particular this context of, of palliative care and of life care is that um many of these individuals are hard hit in other ways who are experiencing um this this pandemic and so um the the the, the challenges around um around palliative care are it's access to palliative care is just it's completely out like out of the equation mm -hmm. um and so we have to target uh, policies interventions um, specifically for these communities. Um, the the second thing I wanted to note was actually elaborate a little bit very briefly on sort of lessons from LMICs um, because you, you sort of 
brought that point up. And, and, and there's a lot we can learn uh, from countries who have experienced Ebola outbreak around contact tracing. They have vast experience on how to train um, a large workforce, a health workforce, uh, to conduct contact tracing. And I mentioned this um, because uh, in, in this context, because those are opportunities to also do assessments of, of psychosocial suffering, for example. Um, and, uh, and then in terms of other lessons, you know, countries that have had, um, had, um, have faced uh, sort of the brunt of the uh, HIV epidemic uh, in terms of messaging um, and sort of harm reduction strategies. There's much we can learn uh, in the United States for that. And lastly, I just wanted to clarify, you know, earlier I, I mentioned the mass migration, migration in India and just wanted to note further that that resulted because uh, of a haphazard um, lockdown that was put into place where an entire country of 1.35 billion people had four hours uh, to get home. And, and so, uh, you know, migrant workers had to find ways and, and rush to, and they were trapped walking hundreds of miles. And so I um, wanted to complete that picture on, on why that was happening. And, and so how one might imagine um, sort of suffering experience, vast amounts of suffering being experienced due to that. Mm. So disheartening to hear these things, but uh, thank you for sharing that. Dr. Redbush, anything you want to say as a final note? Yeah. Yes, maybe um, the same vein that uh, Afsan hit with the idea that it's a two-way road. So on the one hand, I think there are things we can learn from the low- and middle-income countries. And the one thing I was particularly impressed with was after the Ebola um, epidemic that um, they trained survivors as volunteers. So because I knew that by now the survivors would be immune, that they could care for other patients, um, not only the nursing care, but also the psychosocial care. And we do not know yet whether the COVID-19 does produce immunity uh, if you survive the infection. But if it does, then it certainly would be an idea to get these people um, as volunteers for psychosocial support or even for nursing care. Uh, so there, and, and there's, as Afsan already said, there are experiences in low and middle income countries how to do that uh, in pandemic situations. And on the other hand, um, the, the other thing that we're, perhaps we have to support low and middle income countries is not only with online training, which they desperately need, but also um, there may be situations where we even may have to send opioids because by now we know that in many countries uh, there will be stockouts and that will mean that even the, the few patients who will be able to access a person who is able to prescribe that and who has been trained to prescribe that, they may not have any opioids available. Um, and opioid stockouts are becoming an issue even in developed countries. Mm -hmm. So even yes. in, in European countries and North American countries, there are first reports that there are not enough opioids around um, mm -hmm. for the intensive care, requires lots of opioids, and palliative care with increased demand requires also lots of opioids. And this will be much more severe in developing countries that have only very little amounts, that have imported only very little for the next year, um, and the INCB has offered advice on how to emergency import opioids. Uh, there are special regulations for that, um, and we urgently advise national governments to use that and stock up their opioids. Um, but also, it may just be a humanitarian catastrophe um, with, with really huge impact because no opioids are available, and that has to be alleviated. Yes, when I see the opioids that are left over in a hospice patient's home at the time of death in the U.S., uh, I know naive. this is pretty naive of me, but I want to put them in a little brown box and ship them to a lower middle-income country, but apparently I'll go to jail if I do that, which is, maybe you could work on that for me, okay? <laughs> yeah. 
Ms. DeLima, any last thoughts from you? Um, yes, I think um, the, probably just uh, an additional thought. Um, I think part of the problem um, that we're seeing, you know, and, and this is a result of maybe uh, some of the lack of or misunderstanding of what palliative care is. And uh, we recently uh, published a consensus-based definition of palliative care, uh, which is actually focused on the relief of suffering. Um, you know, still there are many people, and I've heard reports from Spain, for example, of palliative care physicians who had not been, uh, you know, allowed to visit patients because they were acute patients and not um, you know, ready for palliative care. So uh, the definition, this consensus-based definition that it's it's also, um, it's an open access paper uh, published on the Journal of Pain and Symptom Management. Um, if, you know, if the whole content and, and I think the underlying ethos of the definition is the alleviation of suffering. So it doesn't have to do with, you know, the prognosis or, or the, the diagnosis of the patient, but the, is this patient or, and, or his family or her family uh, facing severe uh, health-related suffering? And if yes, they need palliative care. Um, so this is, uh, I think it's a very uh, useful um, you know, call for attention uh, that palliative care needs to be incorporated throughout all the uh, conditions and integrated into uh, the system. Wow, absolutely. I think you all inspired me. I'm going to talk to my dean about trying to get some scholarship money for a palliative care practitioner in a lower middle income country to do our master's degree. Hopefully we can be little Johnny Appleseeds in that regard. Well, I'm just astounded at what a wonderful podcast this was. I'd like to thank my guests, Dr. Rod Bruch, Dr. Noll, Ms. DeLima, Dr. Bedalia. Um, this is Dr. Lynn McPherson, and this presentation is copyright 2020, University of Maryland. For more information on our completely online master's science and graduate certificate program in palliative care, or for permission requests regarding this podcast, please visit graduate.umaryland.edu forward slash palliative. Thank you.